We love stories of the underdog winning through, don't we? Who on paper hasn't a hope, who's destined for defeat, who's looking at a hiding to nothing. Yet against all odds, they win through. They triumph. In the Bible, what's the classic example of the underdog, the small one, winning through? Yeah, David and Goliath. It's so familiar that even in popular culture, even with non-church folk, if you mention David and Goliath, they know it's the underdog winning through. Today, as we look at the strong man defeated, we're actually not going to go down the underdog track, even though the Bible is full of those wonderful stories. Today, we're going to look at the strongest of the strong, tough as nails, undefeated in his corner, getting a hiding. Not from an underdog, not from a lucky punch, but from someone way stronger. And that stronger person is Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you will open our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say for us. May we be transformed and moulded and shaped to be like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now in our journey through Mark, we come to two stories that are sandwiched together. Two stories of confrontations. There's a confrontation between Jesus and his family and one between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now this sandwiching of story happens a few times in Mark. In fact, biblical scholars and teachers will call this a Markan sandwich. Here we go. And a Markan sandwich you'll find in the Gospel when one story is interrupted by a second story. Once the second story is finished, the original continues. So here we have a family intervention. His brothers think he's crazy, so they're going to go and sort him out. But while they're on their way, Jesus and the Pharisees have a set to. Then after that's finished, Mark picks up the story of the family intervention. So can you see how he's arranged it like a sandwich? Two pieces of bread with a filling. He does that a few times. And if you keep an eye open, uh, you can spot that technique that he uses. So when I was thinking, now how am I going to do this? There's so much happening. What I've decided to, today, we're going to look at the filling of the sandwich. We're going to look at the controversy with the Pharisees. Next time I preach on Mark, we'll look at the family intervention and his brothers who think he's crazy. So today, we're going to pick up that middle story, the controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees, and that starts in verse 22. Verse 22, And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. You see, the Pharisees are in trouble. They are losing grounds. The Pharisees, they're the ones that are used to popular support. They're used to the respect of the community and the high moral ground. But this is evaporating around them as Jesus continues to say the most outrageous things, blasphemy even. He says things like, I can forgive sins. And he says things like, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are appalled. But his popularity is skyrocketing. Now the Pharisees thought they had Jesus. If they could have labelled him a Sabbath breaker, they would have severely undermined his ministry. His credibility with the crowds would have been threatened. But as we saw a week or so ago, not only did Jesus turn this plot against them, but he walked away stronger than ever. 
And the Pharisees are running out of ideas. They have nothing left in the tank except assassination. It's the only thing they've got left. So they call on the big guns, the teachers of the law that are based in Jerusalem, way down in the south. Now these teachers of the law, they are like the Jedi of the scripture. They know the Old Testament inside and out and back to front and surely these super heavyweights of theology can plan a trap, a good trap to get Jesus and turn the crowds against him. And they do. And their logic is something like this. How does Jesus cast out demons? He doesn't do it like we do. He doesn't appeal to a higher power. He doesn't use long incartations and combinations of secret phrases. There's no bloodletting. There's no fuss. He just says the words and the demons panic and flee. So where's he getting his authority from? And then they think, aha, we know. He must be getting his authority from a stronger demon, a more powerful demon. And the the nastiest and ugliest one that they know is Belzebub, the Philistine demon, Lord of the Flies. This must be how Jesus is casting out demons. He's in league with a stronger demon and the weaker ones flee. You see, that's his logic. That's why in verse 22 they say, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Here it is, a new accusation. It's blunt and ugly and malignant. But though it's riddled with faulty logic, at face value it's difficult to refute. So how does Jesus respond? How's he going to get this sorted? Well, again, he takes the initiative, verse 23. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? Now, if we remember back to with the Sabbath issue at the beginning of chapter 3, there Jesus quoted the Bible. He quoted the Old Testament to put the Pharisees in their place, and he did it well. Today, he's using a different approach. Today, he's going to use parables. That's how he's going to defeat the Pharisees' argument. And so he structures his response with a question that sums up what the real issue is, and then two parables, and then a warning, a very stern warning. We're going to go through those this morning. A question, two parables, and the warning. So the question, well, we've just read the question. The question is, how can Satan drive out Satan? Jesus is saying, you accuse me of using a demon to drive out demons. Let's see if this makes sense. And that brings us to the first parable, verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So, the first part of this parable talks about a kingdom. And in this kingdom there's a civil war. It's full on and fierce and nasty. Now, in our experience of world politics, when we think back of the civil wars, what happens? Well, unless it's resolved quickly, that nation falls apart, becomes a mess. Often neighbouring nations come in and take advantage and take over. So we know a kingdom divided against itself will fall. Now, the second part of the parable talks about a household, a family. And it's no stretch for us to imagine a family niggling, undermining and fighting each other. 
Unfortunately, some of us have seen families like this, families that lurch from one crisis to another before falling over in a screaming mess. So we know that a family that's divided against itself cannot stand. So Jesus' counter-argument goes like this. If a king wants his kingdom to be strong as possible, his strategy will be something like grow the economy, rise taxes, strengthen the army. A king will never sit down and say, the best way to strengthen my kingdom is to start a civil war. That is a bad strategy, isn't it? It's a terrible strategy. It's the same with the family. If mum and dad want to strengthen the family, they'll never sit down and say, let's pit the two oldest girls against each other and play favourites with the boys. Now, some families may do that, but I don't think the parents sit down and decide that's the best way to strengthen our family. It just doesn't happen, does it? But this is what the Pharisees are asking Jesus and the crowds to believe. The Pharisees' illogic is cleverly exposed by Jesus. Satan's master strategy could never be internal fighting because if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand His end has come. It's verse 26. Do you notice the last phrase? The end has come. Satan cannot stand if he's divided. But also, on top of that, his end has come. Now, what does this mean? Well, the Jews knew that Satan's end would only come when the Messiah came. If you said to a Jew in that day who knew what they were talking about, Satan's end has come, they'll be saying, where's the Messiah then? You see what Jesus is doing there? He's claiming to be the Messiah. Why? Because Satan's end has come. And he makes this very clear in the second parable. The second parable about a strong man, verse 27. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. So in this parable, Satan is the strong man and he rules his house with an iron fist. And in his house are many possessions and these possessions are men and women that he keeps in bondage. So just as no one can wander into a strong man's house and steal his possession without being clobbered, so no one can steal and set free and heal those Satan has in bondage unless, unless that person doing the robbing is much stronger than Satan. So you see Jesus' logic here. His first argument was no civil war is going to end up with a stronger kingdom. The second one goes on from that and talks about him being the Messiah. It says, I am stronger than Satan. I am not an ally with Satan. I am his enemy. And because I am stronger than Satan, because I am the Messiah, his end has come. And talk is cheap. Anyone can claim to be stronger than Satan. Anyone can imply they're the Messiah. Where's the proof? Well, every time Jesus casts out a demon, he is declaring someone greater than Satan is here. Every time a person is released from bondage by Jesus, Satan is quivering before the only person that is stronger than him. I'll give you an example. Later in, in, Luke, in Luke chapter 13, we see a woman crippled. 18 years she's been crippled. It's the Sabbath and they're in the synagogue. 
And we sort of know what's going to happen, don't we? Jesus heals her and predictably the Pharisees fuss and they splutter and they criticise, accusing Jesus of being a Sabbath breaker. And this is Jesus' response. Luke 13, 16. Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? So do you see what Jesus has done here? He has entered the strong man's house and he has plundered a stolen or prized possession. He's stolen this woman from bondage. He's released her. 18 years he had been a prized possession in Satan's house. But because Jesus is way stronger than Satan, he can steal his possessions at will. This is amazing. I mean, this is the good news of the gospel. The person we worship, Jesus, is the stronger man who has tied up, has bound Satan. It's wonderful news. It's good news for us while it's doom and gloom and damnation for Satan. And so we pick this up in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And this is talking about Jesus going into the dominion of Satan, going into the strong man's house and rescuing us who were bound under the dominion of darkness and bringing us out into the kingdom of Jesus, the Son the Father loves. Isn't that wonderful? Each one of us has been rescued because Christ is stronger than the strong man and has raided Satan's house. And this is picked up again in Colossians later on in chapter 2, verse 13. God made you alive with Christ. Isn't that wonderful news? He forgave us all our sins. It's getting better and better. He has forgiven us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. Isn't that last verse, verse 15, tremendous? Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, that means he's bound Satan, bound the demons, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, because of who Jesus is, the stronger man, and because of the cross, Satan is disarmed. Not only disarmed, he's tied, he's bound, and publicly ridiculed. While we who were bound, are rescued. We are set free. The chains fall off. The prison door is open because of the stronger man. Now, I love the scene in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Wonderful book, great movie that came out just a few years, probably a few years ago now, but it's great. And it shows this plundering of the strong man's house very vividly. Instead of a strong man in Narnia, we have the white witch. And she had turned Narnia into her dominion. It was always winter, but never Christmas. And the white witch had a magic wand. And if you upset or crossed the white witch, she would turn you into a stone statue. And then she would gather these stone statues and they, she would decorate her castle with these statues. So everywhere you looked, there was a person, an animal that was in bondage. Trophies of her power and a warning for others. But in the book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Aslan is on the move and threatens to disrupt, to destroy the, the white witch. Yet for a time, all appears lost, for Aslan 
swaps places with Edmund. Edmund, who was a traitor and deserved to die, Aslan dies on the stone table in Edmund's place. The white witch feels that she's won, but she did not know the deeper magic where in Narnia anyone who gives his life freely for another will not die, but live again. And so this wonderful scene, Aslan comes alive again and the first thing he does is goes to the the white witch's castle. Aslan the lion goes up to every statue and breathes on that statue. And where he breathes, the stone turns to flesh. And then the whole statue turns back alive to the human or the elf or the animal that they once were. And what's happening here in this wonderful illustration is that the stronger man has entered the strong man's house and is stealing their possessions. And it's a wonderful image of what Jesus is talking about here. The strong man is bound and I will rob his house blind. And Jesus loves doing it. And so here we have a wonderful insight and access into what the gospel is about. The stronger man, Satan, is bound and we are set free because Christ has stolen Satan's possessions. Yet when we read this passage, we often miss all this. We're so disturbed by the next couple of verses, verses 28 and 29, that we actually kind of forget about what Jesus is doing. Well, am I right? I mean, if you look at that verse 28 and 29, have you ever read that and thought, goodness me, have you ever lost sleep over verse 29? I know some people who have. And so to keep everything in perspective, we need to explain the next two extremely difficult verses. 28's not too bad, but the killer comes in verse 29. So remember I said that Jesus structured his response with a question, two parables and a warning. And it's this warning that we come to in verse 28 and 29 now. Verse 28, I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. That's wonderful news, isn't it? 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Well, eternal sin. Is that even possible? Well, let's look into it. And the answer is very much to do with the context. Remember, this is the warning that I talked about earlier, and it's a warning directed at the Pharisees. They are in danger of the unforgivable sin. But what about us? Well, let's explore this. Two things to note. The first thing to note is the surprise reference to the Holy Spirit. And I say surprise because since the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism, we have not heard or seen specifically of the Holy Spirit, have we? But Jesus is saying here that every miracle, every exorcism, every healing, every miracle is because he has the Holy Spirit in him. And when the Pharisees are accusing him of having an evil spirit in him, They're actually accusing the Holy Spirit. Jesus has the authority. The Holy Spirit has the power. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit with every miracle are working together. They are a team. The same team with the Heavenly Father that work today in us. This is the same Spirit who dwells in us. It's the same Spirit that we see here Jesus clearly attributes to all his miracles 
That's the first thing to note. The second thing to note that this warning is very specific. It's a very specific. And it's warning us that if we attribute the saving work of Jesus to Satan, then we are in danger of the eternal sin. Okay? And that's made clear in verse 30, the last verse in our passage. Jesus said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. The Pharisees were saying, well, it's because of Satan. It's because of Belzebub that you can cast out demons when it's actually the Holy Spirit. So they're attributing the Holy Spirit's work to, this, to, to Satan. Now this is the danger. It's a very specific danger. It's not watch out what you say about the Holy Spirit, you know, a general sort of warning. It's a very specific warning. To be frank, I believe it's impossible for any Christian to say. I mean, has anyone here said, an evil spirit enabled Jesus to save me? I've never heard anyone say that. That's what, that's what you have to do to commit the unforgivable sin, is to say the saving work of Jesus on the cross was the work of Satan. It's pretty specific, isn't it? I've never heard anyone say that. And so, if you are worried about committing the unforgivable sin, and I remember as a young person coming across that and being quite concerned that I might have done that accidentally at some stage and really doing some soul-searching. But if you're worried that that is being you, then rest assured that you haven't. (laughs) You haven't committed that sin. If you had committed the eternal sin you would be numb to the warning. You wouldn't care at all. You wouldn't even understand what it was about. And so, this is a very specific warning against those that would attribute the saving work of God to Satan. And if you're worried that you've committed it, rest assured that you haven't. There's a lot more that can be said. You would not believe the amount of ink that has been written by theologians and biblical scholars We'll leave those books into the theological library. There's a lot more that could be said about this. But be assured, if you're worried about that you've committed it, the chances are highly likely that you haven't. So, what's our application for today? What's our take home? Well, we've looked at two and there's a third. The first is a reminder that the miracles Jesus did were because and through and enabled by the Holy Spirit. Jesus and the Holy Spirit were working with the Heavenly Father and we're a team and that's the same team that works with us today. When you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord, when you ask him to be your personal saviour, the Holy Spirit comes in and lives in you. Now some people kind of have that sort of feeling, that that sense, that, that physical, emotional sense that something's happened. A lot of people don't. It seems to be quite neutral. But in faith, whether you've had a dramatic conversion experience or just a a quiet process, when you ask Jesus to be your Lord and your Saviour, the Holy Spirit comes, comes in you. You were born again and that's the same spirit that Jesus had when he committed and did all those miracles. So make room for the Holy Spirit in your walk with Jesus. Often we kind of forget him focus on Heavenly Father or Jesus, make room for the Holy Spirit. Pray prayers that are just a little bit more bolder. Put yourself in a situation just a little bit more riskier for Jesus. 
knowing that the Holy Spirit is with you. That's the first thing. The second thing we've looked at is clarification and assurance over the eternal, unforgivable sin. If you're worried about it, you haven't committed it. Well, let me put it this way. If you have attributed Jesus' saving work to Satan, then you are on dangerous ground. Now, we don't take this warning lightly, but we need to keep it in its context. And thirdly and finally, it's a reminder that we're on the winning side. Jesus is the stronger man who has bound Satan, and Jesus is happily plundering his house. And as we are reminded of this, our faith soars. Jesus, who we worship every Sunday, who we worship every day, every moment of every day, Jesus is the stronger man who has triumphed over Satan. And oh yes, Satan might win a bit here and there, and it can be tough, and the battle is fierce, and Satan snarls and spits and fusses. But Satan is doomed. His damnation is at hand. He is shaking in his boots. The end has come. And Jesus calls us to join in plundering his house. Now, isn't that a bit of fun? The strong man has bound Satan and he is plundering the house and he is saying, come and join me. Tell people about Jesus. Pray for them. And you and I will plunder the rich man's house together. Let's pray.